Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. Hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, you can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here, hanging out with Travis. Hey, what's up? Uh, so today, the bulk of today's episode, about 99.9%, will be a conversation I had with Kenny and Keith Lucas, the Lucas brothers, uh, the creative geniuses behind the new movie, Judas and the Black Messiah. That'll be coming out early next year. I know we said we were going to have a conversation this week about what's going on with Uber and Lyft and workers' uh, compensation, large corporations and government. Uh, unfortunately, those are going to be evergreen conversations, so we will have that conversation. Travis and I will have that uh, probably yeah. ne- probably next week. And we also, have- that that the Uber Lyft thing is so in flux right now. Yes, uh, that by the time we record next week, it'll have changed shape. Absolutely, and of course, no matter what, as we've always said, you can disagree with the process as long as the outcome that you want to see is positive, and that is the whole point of this show, to have a discussion. As long as your goals are for the greater good, uh, then we can uh, then we can have true discussion and, uh, and figure out what's best for everyone in this country. All right, but I think today, let's. what do you think, Travis? The yeah. interview with Kenny and Keith is it's a so good. good. One. Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I regret not jumping in because uh, I really should have asked them about the Lucas Brothers moving company. The, <laughs> I love that show. They're super funny cartoon. Well, that's what some of you may not know. They also were the uh, creative uh, brands or some of the creative minds behind Friends of the People. Of course, that was with Kevin Barnett, uh, RIP Bird Luger for Life. So I've known Kenny and Keith forever, and they can do both something like uh, Lucas Bros Moving Company, yeah. which is very lighthearted, and now they have uh, created this this film about Fred Hampton, uh, William O'Neill, um, just unbelievable characters that uh, I had not heard about before, yeah. and many people haven't heard about before, so this is sort of an old story that's going to be brand new for a lot of this country, and I think it's safe to say coming I think it's safe to say that this movie coming out even early next year is we need this movie now more than ever, perhaps. Yeah. And it is interesting to hear uh, these guys speak so eloquently and passionately about Fred Hampton and knowing that they brought the story to a big studio. And now that there is this kind of negotiation that has to happen between the creator who is trying to remain true to the source material uh, and the philosophy of someone like a Fred Hampton and also the the capitalist uh, cogs of something like a huge Hollywood studio. So it'll it'll be it's interesting um, that negotiating uh, the balance there. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the movie's going to make a bunch of money. Oh, it's an interesting time. All right, everyone. Now I am honored to be joined by my friends and creative geniuses behind <laughs> the brand new movie Judas and the Black Messiah. If you have not seen the trailer, my God, do yourself a favor. Watch this trailer. It looks unbelievable. It is about the life and. Uh, uh, demise, unfortunate demise of a leader of the Black Panther Party or chairman of the Black Panther Party, I believe in Illinois, a fellow right. named Fred Hampton. I am mm-hmm. joined now by the Lucas brothers, uh, Kenny and Keith. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. Of let's course. just let's just start at the beginning with Fred right. Hampton. Uh, yeah, how yeah. did you guys uh, discover his story? He's not yeah. discussed. He hasn't been discussed in mainstream uh, no. America. And yeah, you guys a, are sort of breaking velvet, this news. He's, he's a velvet underground of civil rights leaders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's uh, a bit avant-garde. And, um, I, I, you know, it's funny. We So we, we lived in North New Jersey. It's 
like an inner city and there's a lot of black history a lot of like from like from your kindergarten up until you graduate very you know, radical yeah. place it's a radical place and you're taught black history but the funny thing is like nothing about Fred Hampton I, I always found that to be very perplexing there was there was no story about Fred Hampton there was no like celebration of Hampton I and I always maybe tied it to the fact that the Panthers were Marxists and maybe there was a, a, a public education agenda to sort of keep uh, uh, blacks away from, you know, mar- embracing Marxism. And, I, right. I, and again, like when you, when you think about King, uh, they sort of gloss over that last year of his life when he became like particularly radical and yes. when he uh, was uh, openly embracing Marxism and, and, and sort of drifting more to the left. And so again, uh, we get a sanitized version of King, even yes. in uh, uh, black schools. So I didn't come across Hampton's story. We didn't come across. We didn't come across Hampton's story until college. College. I think it was 2004. Uh, and obviously Jay Z had said something about Hampton, but you know I was more of a Nas guy, so I didn't hear that. <laughs> uh, but so we were in college. We took this class, uh, African American Studies. It was a particular date. Yeah, it was. Af- it was African American Studies from uh, 1865 all the way up until the present. Okay. So it's post civil post-Civil War up until now. Right. Okay. And it was a professor by the name of, he's still alive, but Dr. Fisher. Yeah. And uh, he was a very knowledgeable, he is a very knowledgeable guy. And we went over uh, Fred Hampton's story for the first time. Yeah. And I was completely floored uh, because it was just like, I can't believe there was state, a federal government sanctioned uh, the murder of a citizen for exercising yes. his constitutional right. And I think, you know, with King is all like, we, we speculate that maybe the government was involved somehow, but it's always yeah. sort of conspiratorial. We don't have, well, we don't have direct facts. Uh, well, now we do, but at, right. at the time we didn't have direct facts that, you know, King was being followed and traced and potentially assassinated by the FBI. We just didn't have any, I didn't have any evidence, but uh, with, with, with uh, Hampton, there's evidence that the FBI overwhelming amount, of overwhelming amount of evidence that they not only use an informant, but yes. uh, the Chicago police department relied on that informant's information to do the pre-dawn raid and to execute the assassination. Mm-hmm. So I just thought the story was like, how could this not be something that American citizens weren't taught? And of course, we should all know it. that, in, that informant is William O'Neill. William and, O'Neill is the informant. They also, they use multiple informants, but he was the, he was the main informant that was utilized by the Chicago Police Department and the FBI to plan the pre-dawn raid. Just sort of Fred Hampton adjacent, but I would love to hear your thoughts on this. When it comes to MLK, obviously he has mm-hmm. a monument in Washington. Right, um, right. You know, he is uh, eulogized in the most positive light. Totally. Do you feel as if he, if he could see his legacy now, do you think that he would be upset with the uh, whitewashing of his message i think you i think he would be slightly disturbed i mean this was a man who was a radical right. you know ultimately right. he was a radical he was anti-capitalism uh he was he was he 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 wanted to fight the good fight and fight all the issues head on and i think with his message now it's been so watered down yeah. well, it's like they stop at 64 and mm-hmm. they it's almost like King post 64 doesn't really exist. Yeah, it's like King of 68 doesn't exist. Right. We don't learn about King going into Memphis. We learn about the assassination, but we don't learn about what his political uh, points were when he was going into uh, to, to Memphis. It's just like Fat Elvis. Everyone wants to forget about <laughs> Fat Elvis, but by golly, we have to remember the, the he, hot Fat sweats Elvis that man had on stage. Legacy. He's, a, he's a very important part of the legacy. You know? yeah. So do you think when it comes to Fred Hampton, the reason that people did not learn about him in school was because it was more difficult to sanitize his message because he was someone and i had a i mean thank you so much for bringing him to my attention too because i just went into a youtube rabbit hole and i went (laughs) down the fred hampton speeches and he is such a uh, he does such a good job of um expressing himself in a revolutionary he's a poet but then it also comes across as like extremely like you want to be in his presence Right, you know, right, it's right. it's not like fire and brimstone. You're not watching right. someone who's you don't feel like you're getting screamed at. You feel like damn. No, okay. no, no. He's he's a captivating speaker, and yes. he combined elements of Dr. King and Malcolm X. He was able to speak to the streets, right. but in such an eloquent way right. that I, he was able to just connect to so many different people because of his ability to and, effectively speak. And I think the authorities were afraid of his message because he moved away from religion. You know, there was, yes. you know, Marxist ideology, there's a 
a rejection of Christianity. And I think it's something true of Hegel as well. I just don't think that they embrace Christian ethics. And I think that he rejected it. And I think that uh, sometimes the authorities rely on uh, the notion of religion to keep people complacent. Yeah, because right. Hampton was able to connect to poor whites, poor blacks, right. poor uh, Latinos, poor... Just, he was able to connect to them on, a, on an economic level that I think uh, terrified yes. the FBI. Not, I don't think. I know it terrified the FBI. And he was able to do what Dr. King was trying to do using religion, but he just used Marxism. Right. So when it comes to Fred Hampton, he was, am I right to say that he is the one who coined the term Rainbow Coalition, uh, yes. the term yes. that Jesse Jackson ran with, co-opted, uh, yeah. co-opted, yeah. co-opted it, in the it, early 80s? Again, so. a sanitized version of Rainbow Coalition. Uh, yeah, Hampton yeah. was the originator. He created it. But uh, Jackson stripped it of all of its Marxism. And- it was right. So not the same. So Fred Hampton, can you guys tell a little bit? So when it comes to the Black Panther movement, obviously we're seeing, um, uh, we're seeing shades of it now uh, going on in the protests. Obviously right. with George Floyd right. and that George right. Floyd just being one uh, person that we can sort of look at it. We have, we can put a face to a much larger problem, and because of right. that, folks can galvanize. And the nice thing is, when it comes to Fred Hampton's vision of the Rainbow Coalition in the truest sense, we are seeing a lot more diversity when it comes to the folks so, protesting police right. brutality. Right, right, right. I mean, Hampton was ahead of his time. Right. I mean, he was fifty years ahead of his time. He, he this is ultimately he wanted some version of this. Right. He wanted right. different races of all kinds uh, from a particular class fighting capitalism. Fighting, uh, fighting fascism. Fighting fascism. I think. I think. Here's the thing. Here, well, he, he wanted to fight capitalism and fascism are inextricably linked. They're like right. the Pippin and Jordan. They, they just they need to exist together. Mm-hmm. And right. I think. Uh, I think what Hampton understood is that until our our white brothers sort of and sisters, under, and sisters w- understand the class consciousness and understand that fascism doesn't care about race. It uses race to keep people to keep the the structure in place. But right. as soon as our white brothers and sisters become aware that fascism is just as detrimental to their liberty as it is to ours. It, it, they're terrified of mm-hmm. it. You know what I right. mean? Like, look at look at what's happening in Portland. The, the fascists they don't care about the race. They're 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 completely trying to squash the movement, regardless of who's uh, uh, on top of it. And it's like right. this is what fascism does. It's it's indifference. It's power versus the powerless. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's ultimately the the conflict. And I think Fred was able to understand that at such a young age that's the thing he was only 21 and he was he was so ahead of his time and he understood that it was about power right and 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 it's people in power and it's people not in power right Right. and until the people who are not in power recognize they're not in power then the system's going to be what it is and it's going to stay that way so with fred hampton obviously again he was he was set up he was killed the fbi infiltrated the black panther party they did this right. they did this uh, nationwide not all of these infiltrations led to assassinations of right. leaders of uh, or chairman of said party but nonetheless this was happening nationwide right is the, what what is the sense and i know you can't speak for like the whole black community um right but when it comes to william o'neill what is the sense in this story uh, when it comes to he his back was against the wall, the prisoner's right. dilemma. You want to serve a day in jail? You want to serve, you know, 14, totally. 15, 20 years in jail? Or do you just not want to serve any days in jail? The man is really right. damned if you do, damned if he doesn't. Totally. Um, what, what is that? What's that complicated story? I would assume in this, uh, again, the movie Judas and the right. Black Messiah, right. I would assume he's Judas uh, in, <laughs> in this tale, just with my, I, I'm pretty smart. <laughs> um, what, what, what are your thoughts on William O'Neill's role as he was flipped and back against the wall and, and, right, right. I yeah. think you. I think you summed it up nicely and acutely. I think it's damned if you, damned if you do. Well, damned if you, well, well, I mean, well, well. I mean, the only problem with that, 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 uh, synop- or that analysis is that uh, you know Fred was also he was he was given prison time, right? And he had a he had a choice as well, and he decided he was going to do his prison. He was going to do his time for the cause. He wasn't he would he wasn't willing to uh, sell out the party because of the fact that he had to do time. So I think with O'Neill, you're right, his back was against the wall, but he still made a choice that I think was very detrimental to to the Black Panthers and ultimately was erroneous. Right, yeah. I mean, it, it was a little cowardly. Like, if you can't if you can't do your time, then, I mean, I know it sounds cliche, but don't do the crime. And it's like, you know, you had a, you had a choice. You could either, you know, 
protect a, a once in a lifetime generational leader that could potentially give rise to a movement, a coalition that's comprised of a rainbow of people that could really challenge our fascist state. Or you you cop out and you get a guy killed and then you go into witness protection and then you ultimately die by suicide some 15 years later. So it was like, if you're going to yeah. die anyway, why not die for die for something? Mm-hmm. Right. You know what I mean, and when it comes to like race relations and stuff, obviously uh, Roy Mitchell here. This is I'm just going through the cast, and I would I mean I, I don't really care about the actors. I care about the story, and the actors are absolutely amazing. <laughs> Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, and uh, and Roy Mitchell is Jesse Plemons, who uh, you definitely got you got the white guy. <laughs> you nailed it. This man could be my brother. Yeah, Plemons, he, he's able to play. White evil, like, but the thing is, he's such a <laughs> nice, like, all, like, all, like when he's not acting, he's the sweetest, like so nice. But his his look is so sinister. Like in Breaking Bad, which was one of is my one of my favorite shows. Yeah, he was one of my favorite characters because he was just so. Oh, he just he just has that all shucks. Yeah, kind of like that middle America charm, and but he's he's just so sinister, sinister underneath it. Yeah, uh, yeah, the white devil. Yeah, the white <laughs> devil. He plays it to perfection. Yeah, it's I, beautiful. Yeah, he just did it so well. He was the only guy we thought of. So when it comes to when it comes to Roy Mitchell, his character, obviously working with the FBI, he's sort of the uh, one that's working closely with William O'Neill. Where did this how did this affect in the macro racial relations, in your opinion, in this country, specifically Mm. with the black community, trusting white people who might sympathize, white allies? Did uh, how, how did this affect that movement? Um, kind of going forward. I mean, I think it was it, it reverberated. It was like devastating because African Americans already have a fundamental distrust of uh, the federal government. And this, oh. this is way before Hampton. This is before oh, Hampton. We, yeah, we, yeah. It was already brewing. There was a distrust of uh, law enforcement. We felt like uh, they routinely violated our constitutional rights. I mean, it, I mean, they were literally targeting Martin Luther King, who's a saint. Yeah, I mean, even going back to Marcus Garvey, Marcus and, Garvey, you know, any any sort of uh, person who was a bit more ra- to the radical side, we we just we never have faith in the government to. But there was, but 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 rights. when the federal government started to investigate the Klan in the '60s, and when the federal government tried to push for the Civil Rights Act and all that stuff, there was start there was starting to be, uh, become like a sort of a a trust between African Americans and the government. But then yeah. King died, X dies, Hampton dies. Riots happen, and, and then, then, and then, and then mass incarceration. About, but then we find out about Cointel. And then we Pro find out about Cointel. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of that, a lot of that uh, distrust. And there's Nixon, Hoover. They really just like and LBJ and LBJ to an extent. They they really like affected the relationship between the African Americans because African Americans didn't trust local police. Ever. Right. <laughs> and so we had to put our trust into the federal government, and we thought that there were some good guys, and there were some great. Uh, federal officers who were protective of African Americans, but then you just had this sinister COINTELPRO that just nasty. kind of yeah, yeah it was yeah. just a nasty I mean, program. It, it fed to all of the conspiratorial beliefs that the government you know was spying on us, and they were yeah. So this is what we're seeing now, also, right? So we have people peacefully protesting. Let's just, I think, the perfect micro description of what's happening right now is obviously police are escalating much of this violence uh we saw for example umbrella man in minnesota that dude was <laughs> right, a white right. nationalist breaking right, down right. the windows of the i believe it was a napa or auto zone something like that right. the dc protest that was obviously peaceful again a very racially diverse group of people it was right, one of the right. most peaceful things i've ever seen in my life it was more peaceful than when i do stand up people were actually happy <laughs> um <laughs> As soon as Trump wants the photo op, Bill Barr is out there scouting. He gets his little militia, his little fucking Goombas. Clear this crowd out. Obviously, escalating the violence. Uh, Trump gets to go hold a Bible upside down outside of a church. And then, of course, now they can say, we need to have more militarization in our police. We need more military on the streets because people are protesting. After Fred Hampton dies, how does this sort of begin that tradition of like, well, they're protesting, so this validates, right. and they're protesting something reasonable, mass incarceration, uh, right, right, constitutional right. right violations. But because they're doing that, now that gives us the right to push further. Right. I I, uh, yeah. I watched this uh, commercial. It was a Nixon commercial. I think it was 68, 69. And he was talking about how, like, you know, based on all of, he showed images of the Chicago uh, DNC. DNC riot, yes. or, you know, whatever. And then he was like, we, we need more law and order. And I was like, oh, okay. Wow. Now we're seeing the origins of this concept of if there if there's a quote unquote rebellion brewing, we need law and order to squash it. And it fed right into 
to, if, I mean, it fits right into what we're seeing right now. I mean, uh, and even Hoover says that uh, justice or equality is incidental to law and order. Right. So this is, I mean, law and order is a, I think it's a fascist mode. It's like a, yeah. it's a, it's like just do it for Nike. It's like if you need a model for fascism, it's law and order. Right. It's right. just a justification to trample on your rights. Right. Your, your, your constitutional rights that are protected and guaranteed. The law and order is just like this snowball beat them off phrase that allows for them to just say, your Fourth Amendment doesn't matter. Your First Amendment exactly. doesn't matter. Your your right to protest doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. it's like, no, that's ridiculous. If if I'm being denied my constitutional rights, I have every right to rebel against whatever whatever legislation or model you impose on right. us. I feel like that's our right. Right. And and law enforcement doesn't see it that way. They no. think what they're doing is in the best interest of national security. Again, they have another, all these they have all these euphemisms, these are euphemisms to justify Fashion. violating our constitutional rights. Right. And that's what they did in the '60s. That's what they're doing now. And uh, for some people, it's a very effective tool, especially, you know, people who believe that, you know, the, the big, bad uh, brown and black people are going to try to shoot you. You know, I mean, well, it, what it, the it fascists are fear. what the fascists are most afraid of. They're afraid of uh, the white left who will yeah. bring up, p- pick up arms and literally re- like they're not afraid of African-Americans because we're the minority. They can squash us. But if the white left gets violent, like the weather underground got particularly violent after Fred Hampton, uh, after Fred Hampton was killed, the weather underground went on a bombing campaign and the fascists were terrified of this. And so they instituted law and order policies to quell any sort of coalition uh, between blacks, whites and Hispanics who Mm -hmm. will rise. It's interesting. You said, uh, you know, when it, when it comes to the second amendment, um, there has been a if you there's no if you want to see racial uh, disparity or the ra- racial right. difference in this country, look at right. the Second Amendment. The folks right. out in Michigan who are protesting, not getting a haircut. They storm had, in the Capitol building, storm in the Capitol building, which in theory I actually love. I would love if these people had guns <laughs> to their heads every single day. Um, yeah. Maybe not for that motivation. Yeah. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. But then we had the Black Panther Party and we had, for example, the Sullivan Act in I believe it was like 1910s, 1911, something like that. Yeah. Um, And then there was an act in the mid 60s to here in California to disarm the Black Panther Party. Can you speak a little bit? uh, This isn't talked about very much because, quite honestly, white liberals don't know how to have this conversation. But I believe right. that uh, if you don't have the right to be armed, the government's going to destroy your ass. And that was one of the ways that they were able to destabilize the black community was to say, totally. no, I'm sorry, you don't have a Second Amendment right. Can totally. you guys speak a little bit on what this story, how this story um, sort of tangentially relates to that? And when it comes to disarming the black community, yeah. does that or just what are your thoughts on that? I, and it's the Mulford Act that you were. The, yeah, Mulford yeah. Act, yes. Yeah, I, I don't I mean, I think fascism can creep up in, on the right and the left. I think that white Democrats, some especially Southern white Democrats, have every sort of, had every incentive to disarm African-Americans to make sure that we didn't uh, exercise our right to bear arms so that we could police the police. Uh, yeah. You know, it was a threat to their to their stability. It was a threat to their power. And I think the more people have you know, guns, uh, and they exercise their right responsibly, the, uh, that's a, that's an individual check on a, a fascist body. And I think it's absolutely necessary for the health of our body politic. And with the, and with the movie and obviously in real life, you know, the fear with the black Panthers was like, Oh, these guys have guns and they're, 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 they're building a national army to fight yeah. against our army. So it was always that fear. And, but in reality, you know, the Panthers, 
were doing what the people in Michigan were doing. You know, they were exercising their constitutional right to bear arms. Yeah. And they were protecting themselves. It wasn't, right. it wasn't, they weren't trying to build a national army to overthrow the government. But I think it's that fear that creeps into. Well, the fat, the fascists are reactionary. Right. And they're, and they project and, and they, and they use any excuse to justify their, their, their violence. Mm-hmm. Right. And they'll, they'll make up anything. They'll say, you guys are going to threaten us with your violence. Like, dude. So then they become, they become you're, violent. you're the ones going into neighborhoods and shooting up and saying that they're snipers. And, exactly. And like in North like, New Jersey. Like, yeah, they were so afraid of Fred Hampton, but they, they committed the monstrous act. It's like, we were afraid of that. Right. And they, they don't understand our fear. Right. They just think, they, they think Castro, they think, you know, people trying to overthrow governments, but like, no, we're just afraid of you guys because right, right. you're killing us. Right. You know, and that was a big, that was a large sentiment. You know, I'm, I'm not a freaking historian here, um, but I do know that a lot of people, when it comes to like slavery, the, a lot of people were concerned. If you end it, they're going to be mad. And when they're <laughs> right. mad, they're going to come after us. Right, and right. so we see this constant like push and pull where it's like as an oppressive force, you do realize you're oppressing this group, but you also realize when you let them up, they're going to kick your fucking ass right. or that's the fear. They try to justify the oppression. That's, that's yes. the crazy thing. It's like they try to make it seem like it's this, this moral good uh, when in reality it's like, no, you know, you're, you're destroying families, you're destroying communities. And, and the funny thing is, you know, I don't think black people, at least initially, I don't think we were, we were dumb enough to, to think that if, we could overthrow the 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 mightiest military the in human history like bigger better than the roman empire better like it's the most yeah equipped the most funded military that, has, that human history has ever seen i don't think african americans would be like okay let's, let's, let's let, let, let me let me go with this ragtag group of people to overthrow the government we're, we're not idiots man. we want to defend ourselves right right it's just we, i think blacks want rights just like the italians just like the irish just like the Jews, just like this. Like, we just want our constitutionally guaranteed rights. I don't right. think we want to overthrow the government. I think that that's, a, that's suicide. Right. I'm speaking with uh, Kenny and Keith Lucas, the Lucas brothers. Uh, they are the creative minds behind Judas and the Black Messiah. Check out this movie, Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, it's interesting you mention um, the Black Panther Party as a self-policing a uh, group, a militia, or not a militia, but an organized. Well, there's nothing wrong with having a militia. Technically, a militia. that's in the that's yeah. in the uh, Constitution. A, uh, right. a self-protective militia, and we talk about the military. This is a little bit not quite related uh, to Fred Hampton, but what do you think about the military recruiting in mostly poor black and brown neighborhoods? We look at the military now, and we see they go into these schools. They say, well, you really have no future. Uh, join the military for four years, and we're going to give you X, Y, Z. Of course, oftentimes they don't follow through with those things. It's right, a waking right. nightmare. They send you into a war you don't want to be a part of. Yeah, look no yeah. further. You know, in recent history, we've seen that, obviously, and we will continue to see it. What are your, what are your thoughts on the the audacity of a country to oppress a people and then also use that same oppressed people and use the oppression as a catalyst to get them recruited into the military right. to then defend a country that never right. defended them and this kind of conundrum i would assume is like it's hard to hold in your brain right oh, it fucks with your head it yeah. fucks with your head i mean a lot of soldiers come back from fighting you know fighting for america they come back all fucked up because it's like it's like how it's hard it's hard to hold these contradictory thoughts in your head where you're like i'm I'm a hero but to these people i'm a villain right and i'm putting my life on the line for for this country and these ideals i'm fighting for them but i don't even get the rights that i deserve right and so you you lose your fucking mind right and uh you know mental health mental health issues in the african-american community are are it's a problem it's an issue and i think it's in large part because we're in a country that we feel we've laid down our roots here, and but we we're not wanted, we're not desired, we're killed, we're 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 incarcerated, and it it does fuck with your mind. It yeah. has fucked with it. With and mind. a lot of times, especially throughout history, African Americans thought, "Oh, look, if I die in this war, maybe now I'll be treated like a full citizen." And then you right. die, you go off, you die in this war, you come back here, you're like, "Okay, hopefully now they'll see me as a full citizen, and you're still treated." as a second class citizen because it's so baked into the, mm-hmm. the, the ecosystem of American uh, political ideology that African Americans have to be second class. Yeah, I know a lot of blacks were disillusioned after World War Two. Right. You know, fighting and dying and coming back. And then I think that 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 dis those I mean those guys who were disillusioned 
Right. You know, it definitely helped spark the uh, civil rights movement. Right. At the same time, you got cute ass movies like Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, yeah. You know, created by Disney and not, not to disc Cuba <laughs> Goody Jr. or whatever. He's living his life and, and no problems with him at all. But, you know, it's, right. it's sort of weird how if you actually like it's it just seems like the true message has never penetrated. Uh, right. Like and I guess do you feel like it's getting out there a little bit more now with something like Warner Brothers? I know there was a small controversy that Warner Brothers was um, uh, producing this movie and backing this movie. There were right. some concerns that this was going to be uh, sort of the MLK treatment to Fred Hampton. I know right, some people right, were right. like, oh, can we trust Warner Brothers, whatever, right. all this stuff. But do you feel like we can actually do you think that we're getting to a point where we can actually truly have these conversations and going through the process with Warner and, and making Judas and and, you know, we, we tried to be very, very faithful to the I mean, obviously, it's a movie. So, you know, you, yeah. you take some creative licenses, but we tried to be very faithful to the story. We didn't try to sanitize his message. Right. Uh, you know, he doesn't he doesn't skip over Marxism when he's giving his speeches. Right. Marxism is embedded into into his his ethos. Mm -hmm. And uh, he speaks he speaks about Mao. He speaks about the ills of capitalism. And I'm, I was completely shocked that 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 Warner Bros got on board with this right. because it, it is a anti-capitalist film but and, ironically uh, it's going to make a boatload of money <laughs> <laughs> well you know capitalism has a way of uh that, that, that's all that's all going to be in our uh, next special yeah. <laughs> <laughs> making money of, of an anti-capitalist message fred hampton will be turning in his grave but uh <laughs> <laughs> i mean so is it safe to say that fred hampton was murdered in one of the more one of the first more famous no-knock raids man that's a great question i don't I, I mean I, I would have assumed there have been more in the past but this this one was certainly so uh um so uh i mean it was such a huge one because hampton was a, a public figure who who reached who reached a lot of people so his his death i mean reverberated so i don't know if it was it was it may have been the one of the more famous ones but i don't know i mean it's so eerily similar to the brianna taylor thing where yeah. You know, her house was suspected of co committing some sort of crime. The cops go in guns blazing. They shoot. I don't know how many times they hit her. And then that's that. I think uh, with Hampton, though, it's like, you know, he survived the initial onslaught. You know, he was alive. And then they executed mm -hmm. him in his bed with his pregnant wife. I mean, girlfriend. <sighs> and it's just like. Is when you when you read it, you're just like, how how did the state allow for this to happen? How did the feds allow? How did this happen to an American citizen, a brother of ours? You know, like yeah. any American citizen, whether they're white, black, Hispanic, Asian, if they die, Absolutely. That, I'm it hurts me. Like it means that our our government has failed mm -hmm. on some level, right? And and it did, and it was it was just such a tragic because he was he was, again he was so young. It's hard to. It's so uh, sad. Express how young he was, but how special he was. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't. I mean, he, this was a guy who was trying to bring Chicago together. He, right. he united the gangs. He he started a breakfast program for children. He he built a hospital for the sick. I mean, this was a guy who was on the ground making shit happen right. as, as a community uh, organizer and activist. He wasn't some thug. He wasn't some some military. I mean, he wasn't some you know crazy dude he was a guy who was making things he wasn't right. a criminal but he was treated like al he was treated like al capone. i mean i think al capone might have been treated better than i Fred think Hampton. that he was yeah. Without, a doubt. yeah without a doubt and that's like that just it's, it's like the real threat to the government was a guy trying to use a, a different belief system to to fix the ills of poverty that right. was the biggest that was the issue it wasn't right. that he was a criminal it was that he was a, he was a marxist you can be a criminal if you're a capitalist right but you can't be a hero if you're a marxist and it's it's unfortunate right you mentioned his age. You mentioned his age a few times, and I have to, you know, it'd be remiss if I didn't mention Tamir Rice, the the young boy who right, had a right. fake gun, thirteen years old. He was a baby, right. um, mm -hmm. and immediately was, the police assumed uh, right, what, right. whatever. When it comes to being a young black man, especially in the sixties and and the seventies, eighties, and today, um, <laughs> right, right, right. can you sort of express the dangers of being a young black man in a world where? you are not given the same opportunities to explore your innocence. You're not right. given the same yeah. opportunities to just be a goofy kid who like, right. maybe I'm dabbling in Marxism right now. And it, I mean, right. this, who knows how Fred Hampton would have grown up? Who knows right. what right. he, right. what he, what, how his ideas would advanced, uh, would have advanced or, or whatever it might be. 
can you guys speak a little bit to just how the, the black man has been so demonized for so long right. that even bl black male babies, uh, like 12-year-old right. boys, are seen as right. grown-ass dangerous men? I think about this all the time. Like, I, I think about, like, I'm like, what's the fundamental difference between growing up white and growing up black? And I say that the fundamental difference is when you're white, you just have you have a chance to be different things. Yes. You can be yes. you can be the hipster. You can be you can be the businessman. You can be the capitalist. You can be the Marxist. You you can right. go through a right. range of identities and you can find yourself. And it's never really a threat to your existence as you experiment. Yes. As an African-American, you you really don't have a chance to experiment. You're more or less born a criminal. You're born you're born a criminal. You're born you're born something that's the other. You, there's no you're a monolith. You're just the, you're just this other person, and you don't have a chance to just go through different identities to find yourself. Like there's just no. It's you're so con contained ideologically, but also physically. Like you're stuck in the ghetto, and you're just like. They put you into to this box, both physically and mentally. And you, and if you try to step outside of that box and be different and experiment, you're going to be criticized by the media. You're going to right. be criticized by your own people. You're just they're going to be right. seen as not only just an other, but a weirdo. And it's like, no, it's not weird. I'm just yeah. experimenting. Like mm -hmm. I just want to, like, let's say, like, if you're an African American but you're a bit feminine, you're going to be called gay. Like it's right. like it's just a weird, a weird confinement to your ability to explore different metaphysical positions. Like you, you're just like, or even if you wanted to be gay, like even that's considered like for, for, for the, to be black and gay, you, I mean, it's even, I don't know. It, it's just so much of a stigma in terms of trying to experiment and find yourself. And, but, right, then, but then right. there's this like, there's this self justification of trying to survive in very harsh conditions that sort of uh, uh, motivates a person to perhaps present this like stronger shell where you don't want to present yourself as weak or you don't want to present yourself as feminine. So you have this sort of uh, belief that if you are uh, a warrior, then negative things can't happen to you, but it's very self-defeating yeah. because you internalize and this rage becomes anxiety and then it becomes, it turns into substance abuse and then it turns into violence. And then it's just like, well, you become cycle. you you become what they say you are, and then they feel right. validated in saying that you are right. Right, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Do you think it's getting better now with like Tyler the Creator? I loved his Emmy speech or Grammy speech, right. rather. I'm sorry, where he was just like, "Why is this hip hop? This I'm making yeah. fucking rock. This is like David Bowie levels of right, fucking right, insane." Right, right, right. Right, and then right. you have like Lil Nas in the country music scene right, breaking right. through. So there definitely been some 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 cracks in the in the in the, uh, the, rigidity. In the stereotypes. I mean. Yeah. Yeah especially in music and comedy, right. uh, even po even politicians to some extent, we're, we're fighting against this idea that, you know, African-Americans need to be these overly masculine uh, kinds of people. You know, we can explore and, and explore and different and be a little bit more fluid and, and, and challenge these but uh, then gender stereotypes. Is, is there a flip side to this also with the emasculation? of black men mm. as well with the stripping them there's the reason that we do the re i mean the reason that and i'm not gonna of course again uh, i'm not gonna speak over you on this but the reason right. that you strip them down naked make them show your asshole as soon as you get incarcerated right. uh and this they, to be fair they do this to everyone <laughs> um, <laughs> but they just tend uh, to uh to arrest a certain group more than another um because right. as you talked about growing up black versus growing growing up white if i was black if i grew up in a poor neighborhood i know for a fact i would be in prison uh because i committed a bunch <laughs> right. of felonies <laughs> but all of that stuff that they say oh this is for security reasons oh that's just right. to demean you you're not hiding right. anything under your nutsack there's no right. way right. um right. so then you also have the flip side of like oh the black man is so strong and and that's very scary and then in order to i guess counteract that they just emasculate you to the point where right you don't even have right i mean you, you know what i'm saying no i see there's no balance like there it, in a healthy society, uh, men and women they they have a balance of masculinity and femininity. But yes. when you're in a when you're in a position of second class citizenry, you're put in a position of humiliation. It's like such a, a fundamental aspect of being oppressed is you have to be humiliated, and part of that humiliation is uh, emasculation. It's of treating you like uh, it's, it's stripping you of that fifty percent of masculinity that you probably should have in a healthy politic. Right. I think. I, I don't know. I don't know the answers to that one. No, it's, it's just like, it's just a strange 
it's just again this is it's like such a vicious cycle and i guess the, i mean it's, how I just do you think stop our society it? is so we're so backwards in terms of how, how we the, how we view the roles of gender and, right. and yeah. you know I, I think people are most people are probably fluid Right. We, we get so rigid with these terms and, and sometimes that's uh, embodied in, in the African-American community as well. Uh, but I, I do feel like, you know, people are challenging them. And I think in time, we're going to be able to do away with these, uh, these, these very yeah. rigid gender types. Right. Well, I want to get into some goss of the co- uh, of the cast. Right. Um, so some of the cast is Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, uh, Jesse Plemons, as we mentioned, and mm. Dominique Fishback. Apparently, right. Dominique Fishback is the star of this movie. Can He's you great. just can you just talk about getting this officially like Hollywood elite cast? This cast right. is insane. Can right. you talk a little bit about the process of uh, getting sure. all these folks together and, and being able yeah. to get everyone on the same yeah, page? We'll start, because we'll start from the beginning. Yes. Uh, so it's 2013. We have been, you know, we, we all started together. We were in the Brooklyn scene yes. trying to figure out comedy. And uh, we, this story always, like, was in the back of our heads. And we were like, man, we got to, we can do something with this. This right. story needs to be told. Right. But there was another story about Fred Hampton already out in Hollywood. Uh, so we were like, oh, man, that's our, we can't do it. We, that's our chance, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we, we, still, we still kept doing research and doing research and doing research. And then we came across William O'Neill and we said, okay, this is, this is what makes the story unique. This is the this end. Is the we, we, this is the end. This, we can make this into a thriller, a Neil Noor. We can, we, can, yeah. we can borrow some elements. Yeah, we've always been fascinated with, like, I don't know if you've ever cinema. seen uh, The uh, Conformist. I did not see. Seen yeah, yeah. So it's a '70s film about this this uh, guy who's working for working with uh, the the secret police to take down this uh, professor. And okay. we were like, man, we need we need our version of that. We right. need something like that. I think it was Bart yeah. Bertolucci. Yeah, Bertolucci. Yeah. And we were like, we want something like that. And the Hampton story, which is, it was like, oh, that's it. We have this informant working for the secret police trying mm. to take down. Uh, a charismatic, a, a figure. charismatic figure, and uh, were you were so you we, guys were you guys worried about uh, having William O'Neill sort of be a titular role because he has got to be seen as extremely controversial, and I would never want to I would never want to be in that man's skin for a second um, right. because I can't imagine how uncomfortable that must have been for him and how difficult. Uh, I, obviously, you said he mentioned you he had committed suicide. So. Yeah, no, I I, I feel like. A, a, a great actor would, would read that and be like, I want to, I want to take that role because it's going to be complex. And, I, and you yeah. watch these, you know, civil rights movies that have been made in Hollywood. And, you know, some of them are really well made, but I feel like they're very conventional in their storytelling. And you don't, you never, it, it becomes sort of repetitive and, and you know what's going to happen. And I, I'm like, we can really do something that's different. We can make a thriller. We can make a, we can make it like just awesome cinema independent of, the fact that it's historical and civil rights. We can just make awesome cinema. Yeah. And not to say that movies in the past weren't awesome cinema, but they were conventional in their storytelling. And I feel like this was just so left. And we also wanted to like, we we wanted people to get a a feel of how Fred was seen at the time. Right. From the people who murdered him. Right. You know what I mean? Like if you just tell it from the perspective of Fred, you don't get a sense of the fear that people had of him. I think you tell his story more effectively if you're like, Oh, these people were so afraid of this guy right. that they they went out of their way to murder him. They right. went through all of this to get him killed. That's right. how powerful he right. was. Because it is so much easier not to kill someone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. It is so much. Uh, yeah, they went through this roundabout way to get rid of someone they saw as a criminal, a threat to law and order. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is that's the story. Like, you can never do that with King because he's such a hero. He's such a saint. So there's like this apprehension about portraying him as the criminal that he was seen as in right. the 60s but i feel like with hampton because he was a panther because they were engaged in shootouts with the cops because they have a little bit of taint in their name it was easier to write a script <laughs> that portrayed them as criminals right i am way too juvenile for you to say the word taint <laughs> way too juvenile for that hi max i wanted to share something with you i wanted to tell you how grateful i am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. 
When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a Remax agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. Remax is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study, each office independently owned and operated. So we so we figured out this story. We found this interview. We we're like, oh, this is it because this is William O'Neill interview. He did one interview. Uh, it's called Eyes on a Prize. Okay. And he basically laid out his whole story. Right. How he got how he got caught, how he how he got uh turned to become an informant, mm. how he infiltrated the uh, Black Panthers. And what were then, some of the major events that were happening in that in that year as mm. Fred tried to organize a rainbow coalition and how the FBI and the uh, Chicago Police Department it, with William O'Neill, did did you get the sense of guilt? Uh, did you get the sense of duty? Um, what was, what was his, I mean, he has to live with himself. I and think, again, I, I'm not going to criticize him at all. On, based on what we read, based on all of our research, uh, it, it was definitely for him a, at the time. I think he felt it was a sense of duty. He right. didn't have a, he, he respected the police. Right. Okay. Uh, he didn't have a negative perception of police and mm-hmm. he didn't have much of an opinion about politics. So he wasn't like caught up in the civil rights movement. Right. This, this was a guy who. He was a bit of a petty criminal, and he he had respect. Ironically, he had respect for law enforcement. Right. Okay. Uh, and so when he was working with the FBI, I think he saw it as a sense of duty. But I think once Fred was killed, and he saw that scene of the blood and and, and the bullet holes, and I think at that moment, I think the guilt he realized. That what he did was, you know, maybe maybe he was in over his head because he kills himself. I mean, you don't kill yourself unless you feel some sort of guilt mm-hmm. for Absolutely. taking this taking this guy out before he has a child. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would feel so awful. And he was with Hampton for 16 months. I mean, he got to know him. And I think he realized like Hampton wasn't a criminal. Hampton was a. a I don't want to say he was messianic, but he was certainly. Uh, uh, he didn't drink. He didn't smoke. No, he, he smoked. Oh, he smoked cigarettes. He didn't smoke weed. He didn't smoke weed. He didn't do drugs. Yeah. He, he was just a guy who was trying to uplift his community. And I right. think once Will got close to him and, and, and realized this guy wasn't who they were, how they portrayed him, I think it, I think that guilt, I mean, I know for certain that guilt had to just way on fuck with him. But so we have this story. Yeah. We have this, uh, we, we outline the story. We, out, we, we put it into like a, a film format. Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, we know the major beats of the story. We write it out. It's about five to eight pages up to get the length in and so we're like okay we gotta pitch this uh we gotta pitch this story around town we're gonna we're gonna get so many offers it's such a crazy story <laughs> oh <laughs> my god yes this movie about a black revolutionary who was murdered by the fbi <laughs> this is gonna get made in a heartbeat yeah. we're so delusional so we pitch it around <laughs> we get no offers. no offers. everyone passes on it they're like uh, i don't know about this material and yeah like fuck like i think we're i think we have to strengthen this package so we work. Uh, so we worked with this guy by the name of Shaka King. Right. He's a director yes. and coach, uh, brilliant guy. And we worked with him uh, on this pilot that didn't get picked up on. But we just we just would, we vibe with him, man. Mm-hmm. Like he was just like, and he was a fan of '70s cinema. He's a fan of Scorsese, a fan a fan of crime thrillers. So we we vibed out on just like that that angle. Yeah, we we invited him to our place, and we were staying in Hollywood, and uh, he came through. We were smoking joints, and we we pitched him this this outrageous story that we wanted to tell. And he, he was just like, that's brilliant. That's, 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 that's a story that we need to tell. Yeah. And uh, he, he said he wanted to, he started throwing out some other movie references. Like he said, battle of, uh, uh Algiers. Battle of Algiers. Yeah. He, he referenced that movie a lot and just like Italian neorealism. And, uh, he wanted to make it like that. And we, we just instantly connected and, uh, we started working on a, a more substantive, Outline. You know, yeah. it's and, uh, and, I, and yeah. Again, continue on here. Just I just had a thought though. When it comes to William O'Neill, I do think that there is some vindication of his soul. It mm. being that he was the one who, uh, like, may, he because of him, the Fred Hampton mm-hmm. story is now being uh, right. is created right. a Warner Brothers created a damn movie. Right. Um, that's a, that's and, an interesting yeah. take. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I I go on this trip like you know, the universe does nothing by accident, right? So it's like. You know, he his life had to go the way it did because in order for it, in order for us to tell the story the way we did, in this sort of neo Italian realist way, we needed this guy to be that kind of isolated, alienated character. Right. Yeah. Right. 
Right. Which he was. He was. And, you know, I, I think when you show his character juxtaposed to Fred's character, you're getting the full spectrum of what it, what it means to be an African-American in this country. Yeah. You know, all African-Americans are Marxists. Right. <laughs> you know, there are some, yeah. there are some cold-blooded capitalists totally. as African-Americans. And I think that it's important to, to show each side. Right. Because you're not going to get a, a, full of, a full appreciation of what it's like to be a black American in this country right. if yeah. you don't see both sides. Right. Uh, and it's not to say that all black capitalists are will sell out uh, black America for a dime. But right. there are black Americans out there who would do that. Right. Uh, and it's not to say that, you know, there's a... a black Americans that are so pure like Fred Hampton that all want to uplift the community. Right. Fred was very special. Right. I know more blacks who are kind of like William O'Neill than like Fred. Right. Put it that way. Totally. Uh, well, that's why uh, there's so, only one person on stage. Otherwise, it would be a bunch of people on stage and one person in the crowd. Right, 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 right. 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 Did you think of Lakeith um, Stanfield? Was he was he in first your head? First person we thought of. Yeah, that's first awesome. When the first the conversation we had in 2014, we were like, it has to be Lakeith. Right. Lakeith is the one who can he'll, he'll capture the the vulnerability that we felt uh, William had as a person who was trying to maintain an identity as a Black Panther, but also working secretly for the FBI. I, I felt like just through his eyes, he conveys this vulnerability that just connects yeah, to the Yeah, I audience. saw him in, uh, I watched him in Selma. Right. I think mm. that was 2015. Right. I watched him in Selma, and I was just like, man, this, it, really, it wasn't even a, the biggest role, yeah. but it, he, he made me cry. Like his, role, the, his scene made me cry, and I was like, man, this he 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 is a special actor and then right, he yeah. can get out well and of and course Atlanta. you could see the pain in his eyes in get out because he had right, to have right, sex with right. that old white woman so much <laughs> uh, which is really disgusting and sad <laughs> <laughs> so that you might got, be sad. That might be sadder than the Fred Hampton story. You know? <laughs> that might be more tragic. So you got Lakeith, and so you're like, this is the end for the movie. And then, uh, how did it sort of blossom out? You don't have to do too much time on it, but just you know, just right. sort of, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. for the so, for the I mean, people that for that want to get into the arts, perhaps like how did how did so it once happen? we once we connected with Shaka, Shaka, you know, Shaka's brilliant, and, and we got this outline done, and then so Will. He's the other co-writer. He had wrote a script independent of us. He wrote a a completely different script just about Fred Hampton, basically. And we read his script and we're like, man, there's some brilliant scenes in here. But the story wasn't coming together because it was was just from Fred Hampton's perspective. And so sometimes it kind of meandered, but he wrote Fred so beautifully. And he wrote so many, like, just like, beautifully constructed scenes. And we got to get this. We got to get him on board, too. So Shaka... Shaka, Will, and I—we we just got together and said, "Like, let's let's piece everything together. Right. Let's use the story that we came up with, using uh, Will's uh, uh, script as a basis too, and just restructure it so that now it's start it's coming from Will's perspective." Right. But and so we, you know, they they went off and wrote the screenplay, and uh, it was just it was a masterpiece. I right. thought. And uh, so Shaka had a connection with Brian Coogler. Brian Coogler. They met in 2013 at Sundance. And they became good friends. Okay. And first, we, we pitched it to we pitched it to another uh, production company. It was going to go there. I think it was Casey Affleck's production company, mm-hmm. but that that fell apart. And so, Brian Coogler, uh, Brian Coogler read the script and he was blown away by it. And he was like, "I got to produce this." Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and then we, we got brought, macro. We got macro in with Charles King, who's a major producer in Hollywood, and he read the script and he was blown away. Yeah. And then Shaka went in and t- told him, like, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to go from, from Will O'Neill's perspective and tell it this way, and, you know, with these references. And, and uh, yeah, the rest is history. They, they, we pitched it around town, and then we finally we got several offers. Several offers. I mean, it was a bidding war, basically. And yeah. uh, we, we went with Warner Bros. And um, because, you know, we just – Warner Bros., they're, like, one of the, you know, few major studios. I mean, it's a, it's a couple studios, Universal, Warner Bros. They know how to market, uh, you know, black material. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm really surprised you guys didn't go with Happy Madison, but that's just <laughs> me. I think that Adam Sandler, with a little Adam Sandler fingerprint on this, I think we could have had a little bit more humor. <laughs> um, when, it comes, when it comes to Fred Hampton, obviously you got Daniel uh, uh, Kalua. Um, yeah. Was that uh, was that one of your first choices, or was that an auditioning process, or was he just like I want to do this, and he's already a star? We loved Kaluuya. We thought that uh, he could handle the the more subtle version of Fred Hampton, but also just get really, really big and capture like his essence and his spirituality. And, and Shaka would always say, "Man, it's Kaluuya's eyes, man. Like he could, he can, he can, 
he can sell a scene with his eyes. Right. And I, I really noticed that in Get Out, just like this, the guy can convey so much emotion with his eyes, but it was so, he was able to also capture the, the, the energy of and his body. Was, he transformed his body to look like him. He would walk like him. He would, he would just like his mannerisms. Awesome. His, he just, he, and man, he came to the, we did a, a, re, a table read in September of last year. And he came in at like, oh he just, he embodied the spirit of Fred Hampton and he would deliver each, he delivered all of his speeches as he was Fred Hampton. And we were, you can feel the spirit in the room. Right, right. And that's when we were like, oh man, this is a, this was absolutely right, the right, right, right choice. Right. He, he's so charismatic and dynamic as an actor and he, he can do subtle, but to see him go big, like he went, I mean, it was, it was, a, it, it was, was a, um, um, unreal. I'm so I'm so freaking proud of you guys, man. For those like this is this doesn't happen. Like in Hollywood, this doesn't happen. Like it's right. so rare to get. Like it's just so rare to be um, creating the amount of unbelievable work you guys are. Man, it was just you know, and, and being on set with all these different creative types, be, and to see all of them get impacted by his story, like we were impacted. Right. Yeah. That was the crazy thing. Yeah. you're on set, and you can just feel the spirit of Fred. Uh, uh, throughout it, you know yeah. what I mean. It was like it feels every- like you're no longer carrying the burden anymore. Like you sit, you sit with this story, and you're like, it's so tragic, and it's like, and it's heavy. Like you, like I, I, there were nights where I would just like, I'm drinking, and I'm like, I, how did this happen? I'm like depressed, and I'm like, I, yeah. I just, is this story ever going to get made, or is it just going to sit in our minds? And you get really, really depressed, but then you get to the point where you're actually making it, and you're like, oh, this is, yeah. this is, this is why you wait. And then not to mention, you see um, versions of this story taking place to today, today yeah, um, on, a, on a regular like, basis. We had this, I mean, this story, this was last year and now we're, we're here right now, three months into post George Floyd's death. And you're like, wow, it, it, this story will always matter. And right. this, this story will always be relevant. And when the trailer hit and to see how people responded to it, I was like, wow, like, it, it, it's, just, it's just a mesmerizing thing to, to go through because right. this, in 2013, we didn't think seven years later. But you know what? Racism never lets you down. <laughs> you can always bank on racism in America. Oh, it's, look at that. It's, it's like an evergreen idea. And then it's like clockwork. And then uh, obviously you mentioned Dominique Fishback. She plays oh. Deborah Johnson. Uh, speak oh, a little Dominique. bit on her character and, uh, man, and where you man, came to man. find her. So and, what, I, you know, I didn't and who know is Deborah Johnson about... in this story as well? Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. So so Deborah, uh, she's mother of Kula now. That's Fred Hampton's girl. Oh, well, girlfriend at the time. Partner, partner, partner. Okay. partner. And uh, she was in the room when uh, he was assassinated. She was nine months pregnant. Uh, eight months pregnant. Eight months pregnant. Eight months pregnant. <sighs> and, you know, uh, she's the heart and soul of the film. Right. You know, her relationship with Fred, I mean, it's like romance within a revolutionary uh, uprising. You know right. what I mean? You still have that 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 pure love. You know what I mean? She loved him. He loved her. It was pure, oh my pure God. Revo- revolutionary love. You know how hot that sex would be not yeah, to uh, sexualize you know, anything, but you just gave an amazing you. speech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, they, they, you know, it was just like young love, you know what I mean? Like in the, oh. in the, in the heat and in, in the midst of all of this chaos that you had that, that, that love, that stable relationship and they loved each other dearly. And, and she was just a fighter. I mean, like imagine being eight months pregnant, you're impoverished. She doesn't, she's not rich. And you're, and your husband, your boyfriend or your, your partner is, you know, being trailed by the police and under the threat of death at every moment, like, and to, to still go through with the pregnancy and raise your child as a single mother and, like, just she, her strength is remarkable to me. Like, mm-hmm. uh, Do we know what happened um, to her kid? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were involved in the uh, – so, actually, Fred Hampton uh, – Chairman Fred Hampton Jr., the son okay. of Fred Hampton, he was on set for the entire uh, shoot. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, wow. uh, yeah, he, yeah he's a, he was a consultant producer – as well as Mother Akua, and they were there, and we wow. were actually we watched it. We were we were, during the scene where we uh, during the assassination scene, his his son was there, mm. and uh, it was I mean, one of the toughest. It was it was it was. One I of had those. to step out and like shed tears because it's like this man clearly loves his father, right, and wants to protect oh, his God. legacy, right, and uh, and but he was there and he went through the whole experience, and I felt like it was it was therapy for him to right. be able to like. Sort of, sort of be in that moment with his father. You know, what yeah. I mean, that's what that's what makes this movie so so special, because you know, Fred Hampton Jr. got to to 
be cl- as close as he's, he's ever been to his father. Right, right. And so I, I think people are going to feel that in the movie. And I think uh, he was so happy to see how how moved everyone on set was about his father and how yeah. protective we were of Fred's legacy and, and how we took it as seriously as he did. It was just a, sort of a, a collective uh, attempt to make sure we maintain the, the, the integrity of Fred's legacy. And I, I, I think that he appreciated that. And uh, Deborah, as Deborah, I mean, you know, she's from Brooklyn. She, she, she was familiar with the Fred Hampton story, but not as familiar as, you know, a lot of it. But as she got there, she just truly embodied the role of, uh, of, of Mother Akua. And again, her, the strength of Mother Akua is displayed brilliantly by, De- by, by, uh, by, Dominic, by Dominique. Dominique, yeah. She's a remarkable actress. I mean, she's just... She's she, so good. She's like, I, I mean... She's able to do things that that I don't think a lot of young actresses can do. She can play charming, but she can also, you know, you know, turn it into to sadness immediately. Like she, it was just you're just in, you're you're instantly just sympathetic of her character. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you want to see her succeed. You don't want this tragedy to happen to her, but knowing that it is going to happen to her is just like it makes you even more just uh, you know. She pro- she provides the counter argument to this revolutionary you know, sacrifice. She's like, well, I'm, a, I'm going to be a mom. All right. And, and I got to yeah. bring, I got to bring my son into this world. And, and she just, she's, she's, yeah, know. you can't, it's not just being an ideologue. Like she, she has practical problems. And, and, right. and I think that she just embodied it perfectly. She, perfectly. Her scenes with, with, with Daniel were, I mean, they're just special. Yeah. And they, they're going to make you cry and they're going to make you laugh. They're going to make you feel some kind of way. It's yeah. Just, it's it's just, very cathartic. It's just, even yeah. though it's like tragic. Very yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the most interesting things. And I think this is such a testament to your guys's unbelievable ability to tell a story. Uh, when you know the end, oftentimes mm-hmm. people will say, why would I watch the movie? Right, and right. to have that in the back of your minds, knowing that uh, Fred Hampton was going to be assassinated and murdered by the state. I uh, obviously have not seen the film yet, but uh, but I would assume that that's good. That, that adds another layer to this movie. Um, right, that, uh, right. For people who know the story, you know, obviously you know what happens at the end, but it, 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 you know, the end is just a small part of what Fred, Fred life was. What was, you know, what I mean? Like it, yeah. it was way more dynamic and more complex. And he he said some things that I think uh, we need to hear today. Right. And I think that just hearing him say it and seeing it and 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 going through that visceral experience and being transported back into the sixties. You just you, I think for the activists in us and uh, and like yourself and and some of the others, you're just gonna feel like you're a part of something that's bigger than just the moment. And it's a beautifully beautifully crafted movie. Right. I mean, Shaka did a remarkable job with his team. I mean, our team. I mean, we had Sean Bobbitt, who was the cinematographer for um, for Twelve Years a Slave. Uh, it's it's just beautifully shot. So when you're you're just gonna be in it. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I, it's hard. I, I don't want to give away too much, but yeah, yeah. it's just like. Being in that moment, being in the 60s, being a revolutionary while the cops and feds are trying to kill you, just you, you're going to feel all of those emotions. Right. I, I mean, you, I, I can't wait for people to see it. I I mean, I've wait. seen it so many times and it makes me cry every time. Right. Kenny and Keith Lucas, the Lucas brothers, thank you guys so much for coming on, talking about Judas and the Black Messiah. When is the movie out? Uh, sometime next year. Yeah, we haven't got a, We don't awesome. have a hard date yet. That's what I was wondering because everyone's like only in theaters. I'm like, what theaters? Right, right, right. right. We're, we're we're aiming for early next year. I think awesome. everyone's waiting to see how Tenant goes. And if Tenant has a good rollout, then we're going to try to do some sort of probably some combination of theaters and and streaming. Awesome. But we don't we don't know. Yet. But we don't know. We don't know. And cool. everything's provincial. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is. That's the wonderful thing about 2020. We have no <laughs> idea. Um, I have no clue. Well, I love you guys so much, man. Love you too, love you too brother. Congratulations, and uh, this you. movie is going to change lives and change change America for the better. It's cha- <laughs> look, it's changed my life, and I, I hope that it has the same impact on that it had on me on others. I mean, it's uh, such an important story, and uh, there's a lot of creative people involved, and hopefully, you know, it has that impact. Right. Awesome. I love you guys. Thank you so love much. You, brother, brother. All right, there it was, the interview with Kenny and Keith Lucas, the Lucas Brothers. Uh, I want to thank them for giving us so much of their time, a full life. They're busy people. I mean, and if you have Uh, not seen them, they're twins. So those were two (laughs) twins on the screen. There are two twins 
talking to Ben. Very, it's very surreal. Very good, Travis. Yes. They're twins. They are twins. Breaking news. I don't think that was mentioned enough or at all. I don't think the, it was the, mentioned. I think the people know that they're twins. It's a huge... So I watch a lot of TLC shows, so uh-huh. that's the first thing I would have mentioned. <laughs> They're twins. <laughs> What's it like being twins? What's it like being twins? Now, wow. we, and then we can talk about your movie. Maybe. Um, anyway, those are great friends of mine and just wonderful people, and uh, I'm just so proud of them, and uh, so proud of everyone that worked on that kick-ass freaking movie. Cannot wait to see it. If you have not seen the trailer, watch it. Judas and the Black Messiah, and that is this uh, week's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. Uh, we love you very much. Hope you're hanging in there. Uh, enjoy more conversations the, to come. Enjoy the final night of the DNC. Um, oh, for yeah. some of you, it's it, it's. I mean, a four night, uh, mini uh, mini special. It's it's just been wonderful. Hasn't it's been it? it's been. You know, honestly, it is like getting another season of Twin Peaks. It really is. Well, you know what? I can't wait for the RNC when they have. Speaking of movies, uh, the two John Waters characters, those two psychos yes. who pointed guns on peaceful protesters. Apparently, they're speaking at the RNC, so we can talk about that next week, and uh, we'll do a little recap my, on the DNC my probably My pillow next guy week is too. talking. It's so... The, the kid who, who like spat in a Native American's face or whatever the hell he did, and I imagine uh, another person who's going to be there is Robert O'Neill, the uh, the ex-Navy SEAL who uh-huh. murdered Osama bin Laden. He did not murder Osama. He, you can assassinate people he still without being him. murdered. He, he, oh, he, my goodness. He We're did not... a no-knock raid into uh, Osama bin Laden's apartment. Leave. That's the best thing that he ever did with his life, but Robert O'Neill. He went O'Neil. on a Delta flight, and he yes. took a picture of himself without a mask on. And <laughs> yes. he, he said, you know what? i got to post this to Twitter. <laughs> <Of> <laughs> i got to put this on the timeline. And he captioned it. I'm not a pussy. No, and he's then, not. No. Well, so apparently Delta found out that he posted that and they kicked him off the plane. Ah, okay. Yeah, and then his wife uh, <laughs> made him delete that post. Oh, and then shit. he told us on Twitter, I didn't delete the pussy post. My wife made the, me. The wife so made him. Isn't there. that... There. And that could be his whole speech at the RNC. That is, to be, honestly, that's the power that of Im- women. This man is, killed Osama bin Laden and his wife... It embodies a philosophy that I think covers the conservative spirit at the moment. Yes. Um, just hating everyone, including your wife. Well, I don't think he hated his wife. I think he has a proper fear of her. Sounds like she could probably murder him. Uh, all right. Well, th- anyway, now I have to clarify. I think it's good Osama bin Laden instead. He was a horrible person. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the trailer once again. Judas and the Black Messiah. And uh, support the Lucas Bros. And, um, yeah, support. Uh, it's just it's unbelievable that they were able to do this. And uh, Anyway, as I said before, I'll say it again. I'm very proud of my friends. Okay, everyone. Hope you're hanging in there. Hail yourselves. We'll talk to you soon. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.